Rising Stars of SaaS is brought to you by Pipe. SaaS companies, this is for you. Pipe helps you unlock your recurring revenue as upfront capital. No debt, no loans, no dilution. Sign up in minutes and start trading on Pipe free for 12 months at pipe.com slash twist. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. And... Our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OurCrowd.com slash twist. Hey everybody, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. I'm super excited. We are rounding the corner here in our rising stars of SaaS. What is SaaS? software as a service charging people instead of for a box of 10 floppy disks in the 80s or two cd-roms in the 90s or some giant download of adobe's creative suite for 1200 dollars. nope no more you pay as you go you pay per month and you pay a small amount of money what does this do well it gives those companies a bit of a sharper edge now, what is that sharper edge that you get when you charge a subscription? You are only as good as your last month. If Netflix, as a consumer subscription, doesn't release any new content for two, three, four months, or if they were charging too much for their software, they find out about it. They have that feedback loop, which is magical. And that's what has revolutionized the software industry. You used to pay for Microsoft Office, $400 a year, you get the box, then they would come out with the next one and they would send more boxes. It's a pain in the neck. Then Microsoft just charges whatever it is, 20, 30 bucks a month for the Office suite and everybody finds it easy breezy, but it adds up because if you have a five-year lifespan, that is five times 12 is 60, 60 times 20, $1,200. It turns out, they're kind of drip, 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 bleeding you for a bigger dollar number. That's why Adobe's stock price has gone bonkers. They thought Adobe would crash because of SaaS pricing. It soared, as did Slack, which was bought last week for $27 billion. And we thought we would just dive into it. I'm really excited today to have, da to have David Shu from Retool on the podcast. Uh, David um, has been building Retool.com. Uh, for a couple of years now, I think 2017 is when he started, and he has the greatest investors in the history of Silicon Valley on his team, Sequoia, Sequoia Capital, the people who funded Google, YouTube, Apple, Cisco, the list goes on and on, WhatsApp, I am lucky, as you know, to have been the first Sequoia Scout and the most successful of all time, so it's nice to see my squad over at Sequoia uh, win big, and of course, uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you also were a Y Combinator company, correct? We were, winter 17, yeah. So, welcome to the program, congrats on uh, almost $70 million in funding, 
for going through Y Combinator, the best uh, accelerator in the history of Silicon Valley. I guess we're, you know, close second along with Techstars to them uh, and the great venture capital firm Sequoia, of course, and welcome to the program. You heard my little intro there about the power of SaaS pricing. Uh, when did you first become aware of this sort of revolution in software generally? And then how did it inform the creation of Retool? Yeah. So SaaS, we probably first, I probably first became aware of as a sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm, let's say a cheapskate and I prefer to pay one time for software. You know, I don't want to sort of pay every month or something. And gradually, I think this must have been maybe 2014, 2015, 2016, something like that. Uh, all the software started going subscription, you know, like you said, sort of office one subscription, uh, a few others one subscription. And I was like, okay, you know, because I'm paying monthly now. Um, but uh, I think there are some pros for both. I think a lot of pros actually for consumers, especially, but actually some pros for, uh, the companies as well. I mean, like you said, Adobe stock price is soaring. Um, but those are kind of the obvious ones. I mean, for the consumer, it's a good try before you buy because a month is not that expensive compared to, let's say, paying $300 for office in 2017 or whatever it is. So there's a few advantages there. But on the, uh, uh, on the enterprise side or on the sort of business side, I think there are a lot of advantages because exactly to your point, now you have to fight for every customer. You know, sure, you can sign maybe like a prepaid annual subscription, but, you know, when they sign the prepaid annual for 2016, who knows what they'll pay you again in 2017. And so it really keeps companies, I think, on their toes to keep on innovating. Um, and for us in the early days, uh, it allowed us actually to find product market fit very quickly uh, because everyone in the early days paid monthly. And so uh, we had to be sort of very on our toes, making sure they were happy customers because if they weren't happy customers. They weren't going to stay customers for very long. Um, and so that was actually uh, quite helpful for us, actually, when we got started. So explain to people what Retool.com is um, and who were those first couple of customers that you listened to and you obsessed over uh, in order to get product market fit? Because I think that is something you have very strong um, feelings on and that you've learned a lot on through mistakes and big victories. Yeah. So... Retool is a, a new way of building software. The idea is today, most software today, you know, you build it by writing code in front of a computer and uh, highly specialized people, engineers, write this code. And it's kind of hard to understand, actually. Um, and even for engineers, you know, engineers oftentimes don't enjoy writing this kind of stuff. It's uh, especially for uh, today, we're starting off building, uh, Retool starts off letting you build internal applications very quickly. And no software engineer really is that excited about building internal tools. Uh, I'm sure you've worked with many software engineers. I've worked with yeah. many. I, I am a software engineer. No engineer gets excited about the prospect of having to build, you know, 30, 40, 50 internal tools. And so anyhow, retool is a much higher level way of building software. So instead of actually you know, writing code, we actually give you all the building blocks. So it's actually like Legos, basically. And uh, we give you the Legos and you piece them together into whatever you want. And you customize the last 20, 30, 40% with code instead of having to write the whole thing uh, uh, with code from scratch. And so it's just a much faster way of building software, basically. And was your market developers or entrepreneurs and founders who don't know how to code, didn't have the money to hire developers? Because the no-code movement, which you timed perfectly, and we've had Bubble and countless other folks on the podcast making no-code solutions, and there seems to be, we had Webflow on, we had Apps Without Code, we've, we've, we really have uh, driven deep into this, but there seems to be that developers are anti-no-code, and I don't know exactly why, 
Um, I get the sense that it might be, they might be a little threatened, maybe their jobs are going to go away, or they fear the limitations that they're going to build on it and then never be able to change it. So who is the customer for it? And then if the customer is developers, what concerns do they have? Or do they have a bias against no code? Yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. So um, maybe uh, two-part answer for you. Yeah. Uh, when we started Retool, there was no such thing as a low or no-code space. Uh, when we started it, we were just engineers, and we were like, we're tired of building internal applications. <laughs> you know, maybe we could try, you know, a fast way of building this stuff. It's been really interesting, sort of seeing the uh, no-code landscape develop in the past. I think really year, maybe year and a half or something, and we've ridden the wave, which has been very helpful for us. Uh, but when we started, there certainly was no wave to ride. Uh, Help how when you have a wave like this that you came before and then all of a sudden the waves get really big on the beach and you're like whoa <laughs> this beach has got a great <laughs> surf break how does it make your job easier yeah so i think uh from a marketing perspective or from a customer interest perspective there is a lot of customer interest now especially from larger companies and so if you, you know take a look at our website and look at our logos we have you know some very large customers ranging from uh, uh mbc to warner bros uh to jaguar land rover to mercedes-benz to the u.s army you know a lot of some very large companies some of them, uh, I think maybe 10, 20, 30% of them came in because they were excited by, hey, you know, is there a faster way of building software? Is there a new way of building software that we don't know much about yet? Um, and so on the low and no code thing, uh, or on the no code thing you asked about, I think what's interesting is we sell almost exclusively to developers. Um, and I would say retools more, I would say low code than it is no code. Uh, and I actually have, uh, uh, you know, a few sort of strong opinions here, which is, I think no code is highly unlikely that you can sort of build anything really meaningful in no code. And the mm. reason is coding is actually pretty hard. Uh, you, you know, if you're trying to build a, you know, application that's, you know, used by a lot of people, it's actually pretty complex. You know, there's a lot of complexity in it. And, you know, as, as it turns out, coding is a pretty good way of getting a computer to do something. If you sort of want to fully get rid of the code and have sort of a drag and drop GUI to do it, you know, it's, it's difficult, if not impossible. And so what you see is you see all these sort of uh, no-code solutions that can get you to something like 40% or 50% very quickly. But the last 50%, when you want to do it, you actually just can't do it. Mm -hmm. uh, you hit a brick wall, basically. You know, a good example here is, um, let's say, uh, let's say you're using Airtable, for example, right? Yep. Airtable is really great if you uh, just want a spreadsheet, uh, you know, on steroids. Um, but as soon as, let's say, uh, you actually want to write data back to a database, your data becomes, let's say, too big for Airtable, you want to store it somewhere else, Airtable stops working. you got to start mm. entirely from scratch. If, let's say, you have a data type that Airtable doesn't support, you know, you're hosed. There's nothing you can do. you got to move off Airtable, right? You're in trouble. Um, and so that's why I think sort of for serious business applications, no code is quite hard to actually make work. Okay, when we get back from this quick break, I want to know... When does that transition occur from when you're using a what you can see is what you get, WYSIWYG uh, type interface, you're building this internal app. When do you see that actual roadblock happen and then people have to go under the hood and look at the actual code and then maybe bring in a developer or start actually writing code as opposed to the visual drag and drop kind of interface that most people associate with no code when we get back on This Week in Startups. SaaS companies, software as a service, are amazing to invest in. Why are they amazing to invest in? Because they have some level of 
predictability. The team at Pipe.com came up with a great idea. What if we came up with a marketplace where investors on one side could look at private companies, startups essentially, they could look at their subscription revenue and say, I'll buy a year's worth of your subscriptions for your monthly subscriptions. Now think about that. Somebody's paying $10 a month for a product. They pay $120 a year. Somebody might want to buy that at a little bit of a discount. So they make a little bit of money. And then that gives the startup the money to deploy to get more customers. That's known as the flywheel, you know, Jim Collins style. There's no debt. It's not a loan. It's not money from venture capitalists. So it's not taking equity from you and diluting previous shareholders. One of my portfolio companies, Steezy, you probably know them, S-T-E-E-Z-Y. Ev, the founder, called me and Evan said, hey, listen, we are doing this thing with Pipe.com. I said, I know those guys. They're they're on my podcast. He said, really? I said, yeah. He goes, that's where I heard of them. I said, oh, okay. Anyway, Steezy is a subscription dance app. They were able to get all of this money in advance. Their monthly subscribers, they were able to sell to investors on the marketplace, and now they can deploy that money. They're so confident that you'll love trading your SaaS subscription, this is for you, the founders, that if you sign up for pipe.com slash twist, they'll eliminate all your trading fees for one full year. My God, I hope Steezy did that. Pipe.com slash twist, and they will eliminate all your trading fees for one full year. Let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, David Chu is with us. He is the founder, co-founder, I'm sorry, uh, to his other founders, <laughs> and CEO of Retool. Dot com. They are a no-code platform for developers who are building typically internal apps, uh, at least according to the website. Uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong if people are using this for front-end, public-facing apps as well. There's this question and this opinion that is pervasive in the no-code space, which is developers saying, you're going to wind up coding anyway. Why waste your time with these tools when you're going to have to get under the hood and write code anyway? How do you answer that? I think that's true, uh, which is that uh, if you look at, let's say, no code, uh, it's just very hard to build very custom applications uh, with no code, actually, or literally no code whatsoever. And so I think what's special about Retool, and to my understanding, or the only uh, you know, player in the space that does this, um, you with Retool, what you do is you use a drag and drop interface to get to something like, you know, 50% of what you want, maybe 60% of what you want. But the last 30 or 40%, we actually want you to write code uh, because we think that code is actually a, a very good way of getting a computer to do something. We don't sort of want to invent our own language and have you sort of use drag and drop interface for it. We want you to just go write JavaScript, go write SQL if you want. Um, and so what's interesting about Retool is that you can get to, let's say, 50, 60% quickly, but then customize the last 30 or 40% however you want with code. And so that, I think, is, is uh, pretty different uh, from if you look at sort of most of the no-code players let's say like an Airtable, like a bubble or you know, mm. anything like that. Um, that's what I think is special about Retool. When you started looking at this opportunity, there were a group of people who were not developers who were using, I remember back in the day, things like Microsoft's Access, right? And then there was FileMaker. And I used to be part of this. I used to make little database systems for medical offices when I was 15 years old using, I think, Access and or some other database programs that let you build like little, you know, basically what Google does with forms or Airtable does with forms. And then maybe some conditions here or there, if this, then that's little Booleans that I guess Booleans would be the way to say it of, you know, choices that you have to make. And, uh, you know, if a person is getting approval for something, do this and send it to that person. So you, when you were starting doing your product market research for this, were able to find some of those people. Talk about that 
product discovery step that a lot of people skip. And when, what did you learn by infiltrating like the Microsoft Access file? Is it FileMaker, the other one that was its contemporary? FileMaker, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, we had a hack, which was that we're, we're all engineers. And so it was, we built for ourselves. Uh, and so, right. so that I think was quite helpful. But uh, that didn't make any money, right? Because we can't sell to ourselves. So we can count that as mm-hmm. revenue. And so we had to go find uh, people who would actually go, you know, actually try and use a retool. Um, and during this process, uh, we initially started, because we went through the accelerator Y Combinator, we initially started by selling to other batchmates, and that was pretty effective. Um, and so if you're thinking about doing the accelerator, I think if you're a SaaS company, this is one huge advantage is that uh, you get sort of this uh, uh, ready and sort of willing uh, audience of other startups uh, that think mm-hmm. alike uh, and are ready to purchase software because they don't want to be spending time building internal tools either, right? Um, so that helped us a lot in the early days. Maybe your first you know, two, three, four customers came from that. Um, we learned quite a bit. Uh, you know, a lot of hypotheses were proven correct. Some were proven incorrect. Um, so, so that was a lot of fun in the early days. But then eventually you have to start selling to people you don't know, right? Uh, right. You're selling, selling to friends and family you know, only goes so far. And that's when- It's also uh, a negative signal, right? I mean, I've, I've talked to venture capitalists who- discovered this sort of Y Combinator playbook. And I think Techstars was doing it as well, which is you get on Bookface, which is like Facebook's, I'm sorry, which is Y Combinator's internal social network. It's kind of their internal Slack, I guess. And this became a playbook, which was, hey, get the thousands of other folks. Hopefully you get three or four to use your product. Then when you present to investors, you have three or four customers, but they might've been, you know, doing you a favor by using it. And who knows if they stick with the product. So, Investors specifically started saying, "Hey, where did you acquire these first five to ten invest the customers?" Yeah, right? yeah. You may have heard the joke, which is, you know, you can sell someone something, they sell you something, they both have revenue, but in reality, no one's actually making any money, right? Right. Um, yes. And there's certainly a lot of that, I think. A little round tripping, as we call it <laughs> exactly. in the industry. I'll pay you ten bucks, you pay me ten bucks, something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah so um, I agree, uh, and uh, I, I think the benefit is that you get early users, but you mm. shouldn't view that. Uh, you should you should view that as you know, there's some. There for sure, but but it's not substantial signal, right? Um, to really know whether you have product market fit, you have to sell to people you don't know at all. They hopefully buy your product, and so for us, that's when we learned a lot about you know discovery, sales, product market fit, all that fun stuff. Because um, one pretty interesting, uh, like you said, you know, retool is conceptually similar to FileMaker or Access and stuff. Uh, and so one day uh, we were thinking, you know, how do we sell retool? How do we find people that would use retool? And I remember I just went on LinkedIn. Uh, I searched up some FileMaker user group. I found it. Uh, I requested to join. You know, two days later I was approved and I infiltrated the FileMaker user group. And then I just took a look to see who was there. And there's you know a few hundred members. And uh, we just take a look at the names, took a look at the companies, scraped some emails, um, and then started sending cold app out to these people, basically. So you basically find people who are using the competitor or the legacy product. Yeah. You go to their LinkedIn group, you infiltrate it, you look at their profiles and you find the hundred of them, 200 of them, and you email them. And then some number respond. What percentage would respond out of a hundred or 10? Uh, and what would they tell you? And then how do you parse that feedback? Very little, over uh, very few respondents out of 300 or so, maybe three, maybe six, something like that responded. One um, to 2% response rate. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And uh, the really disappointing thing that was not the response rate, it was the responses. Um, I think we got some really negative responses. I think you know, out of six <laughs> responses, probably five out of six told us uh, this is a terrible idea and we shouldn't go do anything. And then one guy was like, this is a bad idea, but I'll hop on the phone with you to tell you why it's a bad idea. Uh, so we okay, phone. slightly better. Uh, <laughs> it's slightly better. I don't want to date um, you. I think that you're not the proper mate for me, but I'd love to get on the phone with you and tell you exactly how bad of a mate I think you would be. <laughs> it's basically what they're telling you exactly. so what did they tell you when you got on the phone with them um so what we discovered is i think filemaker is quite legacy i think filemaker first came out maybe something like 20 years ago right and so the people using filemaker were sort of pretty ossified in their ways and they were using filemaker 20 years later even filemaker i don't think it's well supported today right i don't think it's kind of like a shell of a company now i got bought by apple actually maybe 10, 15 years ago. And there's really no innovation there. So the fact that they're using FileMaker should tell you something, which is they don't care about, you know, being on the bleeding edge or trying new things. Um, and that's something we didn't realize. But anyways, uh, what they told us basically was FileMaker serves my needs very well. Um, here are maybe three very specific FileMaker things that, uh, you know, are kind of annoyed with FileMaker, but they were not generalizable. You know, it was like, uh, this FileMaker button, instead of being here, uh, should be mm -hmm. over here. And what are we going to do with that feedback? You know, it's not yeah. like we're cloning FileMaker, right? Um, and so, that was interesting because it was a total failure, basically, sort mm. of trying to uh, uh, get into this file. Like, user group trying to email them, but it was a total failure. No customers ever came out of that. In fact, we actually got more, we got less motivated uh, because of, uh, all the, first of all, the lack of replies, but also the, uh, the uh, negative replies too. And so, um, but what's interesting though, is if you sort of look at the product today, our product today is actually not very different from the product we emailed. I mean, of course, it's mm. more advanced in you know, so many ways. We have so many more features and we have so many more product lines now. But the fundamental product is actually pretty similar to what we had before. And I think this for us was a very interesting learning about product market fit, which is that when it comes to product market fit, there's both the product, but there's also the market. Um, and uh, most people just think, you know, hey, I emailed some people, it didn't work. Let me go pivot my product a little bit, like email them again or something. Um, as it turns out, you can also adjust the market. And so for us, we were like, okay, that filemaker thing didn't really work. Um, why don't we try finding more people who are similar to us, engineers? Developers so who are building startups or working at big companies? At the beginning, it was startups uh, because yeah. they were more likely to reply. Um, Got it. But uh, I think this is a uh, aside, but a very interesting point about developers um, is that developers are remarkably similar uh, at a big company, at a mid-sized company, at a small company. So, you know, we have developers, we have customers now, at, let's say at NBC, it's actually pretty similar to a developer at, let's say, you know, a Allbirds, another customer, is pretty similar actually to a developer at Brex, let's say, uh, to, you know, a developer at a small two-person YC company. Um, and if you think about, you know, sort of frameworks that developers use, like React, for example, React is used by large companies, small companies, you know, everything in the middle. Uh, and so that I think is one big advantage of creating a developer first product is that if you, you know, let's say sell to salespeople or sell to operations people or support people or success, you know, it's so different. For, you know, NBC is so different from Brex, right? Whereas developers, you know, a developer that gets a job at Brex could probably get a job at NBC, could probably get a job at Bank of America. Uh, and so that uh, helped us a lot in the early days. So anyways, we pivoted uh, our market a little bit and said, hey, you know, file market developers probably is not the market. Let's actually go switch to just developers. Um, and that, Now, what about uh, this point around developers being anti-no-code? Is... Speak to that because there's obviously some group of them who are embracing this. So what did the what does that group understand about no code or WYSIWYG tools or whatever it is versus the developers who have a bias or they're anti anti retool or just anti no code in general? 
I think the key is actually low code rather than no code, mm. because um, when we sell to uh, developers, developers actually are generally pretty excited about retool. And mm. the reason, so, so I think you had two hypotheses before about why developers don't like no code. Um, one, maybe they feel a bit threatened. Two is uh, maybe it's not flexible enough. In our experience, it's really the latter. Um, to be fair, maybe they haven't confessed the former to us, but I think it's also the latter, which is that, um, I mean, actually, this is true for me too. You know, I'm an engineer and I hate using something like a, let's say like a Weebly or a Webflow or, you know, any sort of WYSIWYG tool because I just feel like, you know, I, I can't express what I want to express. You know, I can't write code. I can't customize it. And I'm just highly skeptical as an engineer that I could possibly use a WYSIWYG tool and really customize things. Um, mm. so I think it's really mostly that. And for us, uh, we don't have that problem because we say, hey, you know, the first 30, 40, 50% of, you know, sort of the laying out the application, which is not the stuff you want to be doing anyways, you could use a drag and drop tool for that. But the remaining stuff, you know, you're probably going to have to write code to customize it. You know, mm. a good example is, um, let's say you're trying to uh, write a switch statement in JavaScript. So switch statement basically says, hey, you know, if the number is one, do this. If it's two, do this. If it's three, do this. If it's four, do this. If it's five or more, do this, let's say, right? Um, mm. Trying to do that in a WYSIWYG editor is really painful. And you can imagine mm. why. You basically have to draw a bunch of, you know, bubbles. You have to draw a bunch of arrows. You say, hey, you know, uh, this variable is the bubble and the arrow. I got to draw one for one, draw another one for two, draw another one for three, and then you got to execute, you know, this other bubble. It gets really complicated, right? Mm. Whereas in code, it's really simple. You say, you know, switch, you know, X, let's say, switching on. You say case one, case two, case three, case four. It's, it's just much more concise. Um, mm. And so that I think is a good example where you lose a lot of flexibility uh, when you try to re-implement coding in a non-textual format. Um, and so uh, I think developers are skeptical of no code. And I think rightfully so, uh, because uh, trying to use a WYSIWYG editor is just so much less powerful. And well, in most business applications that we've seen, power is critical. If you're building, let's say, you know, a simple app for, let's say, uh, you to track, you know, uh, playtime with your daughter, for example, you know, you probably don't need anything that complex, right? If it doesn't fit your yeah. spec exactly, that's fine. You know, if you don't have the exact data type, You'll, you'll make do. But if you're a large company like NBC, let's just trying to predict, uh, uh, or try to price, you know, ads for the Olympics next year, you know, that ad yes. is. They're talking yeah. about hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in revenue, billions of dollars in expense. If the boss, uh, whatever she wants, she's going to get it. And, uh, yeah. Are you drinking apple juice or a little bit of Macallan 18? Answer that question when we get back. I also want to know your thoughts on now you just raised i think at a 925 million dollars so you're just before becoming a unicorn essentially probably a unicorn your thoughts on the employees i know you have some strong feelings on this employees who are drawn to this sort of you know unicorn hunting and trying to get on that unicorn squad versus uh the right employees when we get back on this week in startups as someone who's invested in over 200 amazing startups and advise countless others, I want to talk to you about a serious pain point I see all the time. People are spending a ton of money, they have massive burn, and they don't have a lot of revenue. And what that leads to is a short runway. What are one of the big costs that people have? It's all of the time and money that they spend on SaaS software that they've got to integrate together. And they take all this time that should go towards their customers, right? Well, Odoo is here to change that. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software that allows you to build and 
scale your stack as you build and scale your business, right? That's the way it's supposed to work. It's really simple. It's modular, so you can just plug in the different pieces. And it's all open source, so you can spend your capital on talent, people, resources, human capital, as opposed to having 50 different, 25 different expensive software products. So here is your call to action. Your first app is forever free. That's right, free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering you a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's no joke. I'm not, I didn't say a hundy. I said 10 hundies, $1,000 right now, but you have to get it now. Odoo.com slash twist, odoo.com slash twist. Get that $1,000 right now. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, David Shu is here. He is DVDHSU on the Twitter if you want to follow him. And uh, he is the CEO of retool.com, backed by Y Combinator and Sequoia. What a, what a, uh, great group of backers and actually a, a shout out to indie hackers he was on Cortland's podcast uh, as well so and Cortland was on our podcast episode 1143 uh, and you, oh and you got Patrick from Stripe also as an investor that's fantastic yeah, so I saw you just refilled that uh, that low ball uh, looks like a scotch glass but you're drinking that pretty fast and you're seeming pretty uh, coherent. That's apple juice or is that scotch? I do have a high tolerance, but, but I'm actually drinking tea right now. So Okay, it's tea. All right, <laughs> Sorry, good. I was looking at that and I was like, hmm, four o'clock, ta- four o'clock taping during a pandemic, month 10 of the pandemic. <laughs> Everybody's at home. No judgments if you need a Macallan 18 to get through the pod. I understand. Um, so... Some thoughts on, you know, going from a bootstrap company who, let's face it, you, you were, you're pretty conservative in terms of raising money in the beginning and hiring. You took your time to get product market fit, but hey, here we are four or five years later. I mean, less than five years later, four years later. Now you got a billion dollar market cap. What, one, how did that happen? I mean, what was the uptick in this product in terms of revenue in order to get to that valuation? Because. That would imply to me at least $25 million in revenue or something in that range uh, if it was 50 times revenue, uh, which would be an incredible valuation, by the way. Uh, and uh, what are your thoughts on building a team when you start getting to this unicorn level? Yeah. So we were actually always pretty quiet about Retool. Um, it turns out we actually raised a Series A something like well, 18, 19 months ago, something like a year and a half ago. We actually raised a $25 million Series A as well. So it was, That's a know, big. It's more like a B, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Because they're probably um, buying 15% of the company at that point. So it's probably a $150 million valuation, something in that range. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. And so um, what's interesting is uh, on the sort of bootstrapping side of things, I think for SaaS companies today, starting a SaaS company is so cheap, mm. especially if you're a technical founder, yeah. that you really just don't need that much money to keep going. And so for us, when we went through YC, you know, YC gave us what, 120K, whatever it was. Yep. After that, we raised a small seed round, maybe around a million dollars entirely from angels. And, um, once we did that, I think we burned maybe, 100k of it, maybe 200k of it. And we, I think we're already in the maybe just hit a million or in revenue or something. We raised wow. our Series A. So you're basically dilute A. 7% with uh, the uh, Excel, accelerator DL, six or 7% common. And then you, if you raised a million out of 10 million or something like that, you, you know, you, you, you dilute 10%. So you, you're still 
you and your co-founders and team own 83% of the company at that point. And then you really shouldn't even use the money <laughs> uh, for a couple of years. So uh, that's in a way frustrating, but it, you know, it's a nice insurance policy to have all that cash in the bank. But then you went big two years later, three years later. How do you make that decision to go big? Yeah, so I think we really made this decision actually in the Series A because I don't think we would have raised a Series A if we just wanted to stay sort of small or bootstrap. Because look, at that point, our life was pretty good, right? I mean, at that point, the team was maybe three people, maybe four people, something like that. And we're making a million revenues. Exactly. How much? Right. And so if we wanted to. Uh, what were you making just, at that point? I think just above one, maybe one point, one point two million dollars in revenue, something like that, right? And so, if we wanted to, we could have very easily moved to Hawaii and just, you know, yeah. uh, lived a pretty happy life. And the North growing. Shore, it wasn't, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't stagnating, right? It could have grown a bit longer, a bit more, and you know, we could easily make five hundred k a year, maybe a million dollars a year per person. We'd be pretty happy. Um, but uh, ultimately, uh, our goal is not to just make a million dollars a year. Uh, our goal is to change how software is built. And mm. I think there's a real opportunity for us to do that today. I mean, if you sort of look at how software is built today, it's, it's actually kind of ridiculous how uh, if you look at you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, the way we build software actually has not fundamentally changed no. at all. It really is. You know, you sit around a computer, you write code. It's you know, pretty esoteric looking code if you're not an engineer, uh, that is. And you get computers to do things for you. And it's very low level. You know, you're saying, hey, if this, then that, you know, if this and that, oh, you know, it's very low level. And so for us, when we first started out, you know, to be clear, that was not our vision. Our vision was not to sort of change how programming was done. Our vision was to, hey, you know, I think there could be a faster way of building all these internal applications. But as we got deeper and deeper in and got more and more customers, we realized that the kind of stuff that people were building on Retool ranges so much. It's, you know, like previously mentioned, sort of a tool for, let's say, uh, NBC to go manage uh, pricing for ads for the Olympics all the way to, you know, how Brex does like KYC and onboards customers, for example, all the way to, uh, there's another startup uh, that was actually in our batch. Uh, it was, you know, kind of like Uber for kids, uh, uh, where, uh, you know, you as a parent can sort of send your kid on, on an Uber ride, basically. Um, and yeah, they would manage somebody who you could rides. trust and make sure you had security and safety and all. They knew yeah, how to and deal they would with manage the all the rides via retool. And, you know, that is wow. how they looked up, uh, where the car was and where your, where your kid was, right? And so all this stuff, uh, is being built on retool. We're like, wow, that's so, you know, it's so different, right? You know, Olympic ad forecasting tool is so different from tracking your kid, right? Um, and that's when we realized that, hey, you know, there is a potential here to really not just change how, uh, uh, let's say how NBC does, you know, forecasting, but really change how software itself mm. is built. And once we realized that, I think it was clear to us that, you know, if there's an opportunity, we, you know, if there's such a big opportunity, we got to take it. And so that's how we ended up raising the Series A. And so when we raised it, you know, it was what, just above a million revenue, uh, something like four people, I believe. Um, and even then, you know, we went pretty big. We raised $25 million for the Series A. Um, and for a while, we weren't sure that we should do it. Uh, uh, it was with Sequoia as well. We weren't really sure because, I mean, we just had to use the money from the seat. Uh, and so mm. actually, in retrospect, uh, when we raised the B, we had actually used maybe a few hundred K, maybe, you know, five, mm. I think less than a million dollars from the Series A as well. Uh, and so, so it was completely opportunistic. You didn't need to do it. You do these opportunistic raise. Now you put yourself in the driver's seat. You got a, a bunch of cash. What What is the plan to deploy that cash? We I understand why VCs want to put the money in. They think you're going to win. They think they're going to get a return on investment. But because you're so capital efficient, because you're so frugal, because you're a developer-led uh, CEO team, uh, and you have product market fit, obviously. 
um, so we know their goal, but then what do you decide to do with the money? You, you have to think, hey, we want to change the world. Is it localizing it to other languages? Is it just hiring developer evangelists? Is it marketing? Is it, you know, building new product lines? How, how do you think about deploying that amount of capital in a company that's already profitable? Yeah, great question. So on our side uh, today, I think there's a lot of building to be done. I mean, today, to give you a sense, Retool is a 50-person company. You know, it's, it's not very big. Wow. Really. And, but I mean, uh, you did, that's a big change from a three-person company. <laughs> in two, you, you did that in two years? You went from three to 50 in two years or so? Yeah, let's do the math. Yes, we did. So yeah, two years that's ago. Four, that's four people. Point, uh, four. Yeah. Actually, yeah. it might have been two people, actually. I think we were two people yeah. two Novembers ago. Or December. But two December. Yeah, so ago, you're adding a people. person every other week. It's pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so on our side now, I mean, Retool is still a pretty small company. <laughs> like a lot of things are not built out. I think our sales team, when we raised the B, I want to say was three people. Uh, mm. It was small. Uh, marketing team was two, three people at the Series B. Yeah. Uh, support team was one person. Uh, success team yeah. was like two people. So, a lot so of you got to add a zero to each of those, exactly. basically. Um, uh, given that we have product market fit and we have a lot of customers that are really demanding better support, they're you know we have uh, people yeah. uh, leads coming in every day who are demanding talking to salespeople or, or de demanding the uh, uh, the help that a salesperson can provide. Um, and so we really just need to grow the team. Really. Um, yeah. That said, I, I think a uh, interesting divide among sort of Silicon Valley companies is whether to be let's say more sales driven or more let's say engineering or product driven. Um, right. And uh, you see a lot of companies who, you know, raise a large round and just go hire a lot of salespeople uh, and really try to blow up lots of marketing, try to, you know, try outbound, really hit the gas at the sales side. Um, I think sales is incredibly important uh, to a SaaS company. It is critical uh, to have a uh, high-performing uh, and eventually large sales team. That said, uh, I don't think, you know, for our goal of becoming the way developers build internal software and eventually the way, you know, people just build software in general – you don't get there by sales. Uh, there's too many developers. Now you got to get the like developers to buy in, right? If they don't buy in, it's over. But if you do get a hundred of them who've bought in at a big company like Peloton or NBC, well, then somebody's got to go and and sell in a ten million dollar a year. So I guess when yep. we get back from this quick break, I want to know how do you do this bottom up sales where people are paying fifty bucks a month, six hundred dollars a year for a developer to use the platform to What's the biggest customer you have in terms of seats, uh, if you can say it, and if not, you can make a composite here. When we get back from the break, I want to understand how you make that shift, like Slack struggled to do, is the one thing that Stuart said, maybe, and and I think Sachs and uh, Chamath on the All In podcast, who were involved with the company, said, you know, was the, the one maybe leak in their game, the one thing they could have done better, self-admittedly, across the team, and an amazing outcome. But they did say Slack was late to getting the million dollar plus clients. I'm wondering if you've thought about that and how do you think about hitting those seven figure, eight figure clients when we get back on This Week in Startups. Do you wish you were in on some of these amazing IPOs in 2019 and now in 2020? Well, our crowd lets accredited investors invest directly and super easily and most importantly early in these type of private companies that then go public. 
That is the dream, right? And our crowd makes that dream a reality for investors who get to benefit from companies like Beyond Meat going public. And what they do is they leverage their network, right? Because it's all about your network and investing. And they review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world, just like I do. They let you review those deals. And they give you access to our crowd's investor relations team. Their investment team has already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in over 200 companies with dozens of exits already under their belt. Today, you can go in there and you can join a single deal for as little as 10K, or you can join one of their funds for as little as 50K. So today you can join our crowd's investment in blue green water technology. This is a startup that's going to keep our water safe. Our global water supplies are under attack from toxic algae blooms. And that makes some water just unpotable. You can't drink it. Unpotable is like a fancy word for undrinkable. And blue green's proprietary EPA approved technology eliminates the toxic algae that's poisoning the world's water resources. And you can get in early on blue green and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D.com slash twist. Thanks to our crowd for supporting independent media like this week in startups okay let's get back to the show welcome back to this week in startups our guest today is david chu son of parents who immigrated to america correct yes we talked before and in this day and age your parents probably would not have been allowed into the country you ever think about that i do yeah um it's crazy how much silicon valley is built by immigrants um, if you look at the company started by immigrants uh, and their children, it's, yeah, ridiculous. It's unbelievable. And you just think your parents would not have been allowed in if we continue this insane immigration policy. We need as many high-performing immigrants in this country as possible. And we it's a free resource, and we're giving it away to other people, other countries, right? What are, it's, it's just amazing to think. It's And it's so often the sons of the immigrants or the daughters of the immigrant parents who then go out and have the outlier success, right? It's because somebody struggled to get here. And then those kids, I mean, you, you, you share a burden or do you, did you feel a burden coming up that you needed to perform in a way to live up to the risk your parents took and the suffering they must have had in coming here from China? Yeah, I think to some extent, uh, because like you said, it's a, it's not an easy journey to move to another country where you don't know anyone at the age of, you know, 20 or 23 or 25 or whatever. Oof, right? So um, brave. So I'm incredibly grateful to the fact that they moved here because if, if they hadn't, you know, retold, first of all, definitely wouldn't be a thing, but I would be totally different. I'd probably be doing something entirely different uh, yeah. in China. Um, so I'm endlessly grateful for that. It's just something uh, I think everybody who listens to this podcast and we think about what we want from our representatives and from this country in the next decade. We really do need to really think about this incredible diamonds. We're basically being offered diamonds and platinum and rare earth minerals in the form of brains and raw talent. And we are stopping them at the border for some insane reason. Uh, when we went to break, we talked about Slack. They have 87 customers, I think, who spend over a million dollars a year. But for a company that's you know doing a billion dollars a year, it's an incredibly low number of people. They added sales on the back end. Slack is run by a product design, you know, guru and uh, Stuart, and you know, is truly talented. But he said himself, "Hey, we need to 
get more people uh, in the sales team. So how do you think about that? Who's your big, uh, who's your big, um, who's your biggest customer and what does that footprint look like? And how do you think about those seven, eight figure deals? Yeah. So we started doing sales very early, uh, very, very early. Uh, and I think sales oftentimes gets a bad rap, but uh, sales is actually the way you learn about your customers and how you actually find product market fit because most SaaS companies don't start off with product market fit. You got to iterate a little bit, got to tweak this, got to tweak that. And the only way you figure out what to tweak is by talking to customers. Mm. Uh, and uh, the uh, most concrete way that you know a customer actually likes their product is if they pay you money for it and keep on paying mm -hmm. money for it. Yeah. Uh, and they don't charge. Generally, right? customers don't give you their credit card if they don't want the product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, for us, sales is always incredibly important. Um, it's something we invested very early in. For mm -hmm. me, I think, I think probably something like 60, 70% of my time in the early days was spent on sales. I mean, once we had any product. Really? You did it yourself. So you were doing the development of the product hiring people to work at the company and doing the sales that must lead to a straight line to a deeper understanding because you were fearless in doing sales which most developers i think if you ask most developers to go on a sales call they that would be their worst nightmare and if you ask most sales executives to go write some code that would also be their worst nightmare these two circles overlapping for you is probably a big reason of why you have such tight product market fit correct I think so. Um, and it's, I, I think there is, uh, this image of sales that it's, you know, you go to like a steak dinner and trying to, you know, shove product, uh, down someone else's throat that they don't actually want. That could not be further from the truth, at least, you know, for us today. Yeah. That um, was like the old Oracle days, like in the nineties. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the best, uh, you know, for us today, sales really is about delivering value to the customer. Um, mm. and if you figure out how to deliver value to the customer, the money will come. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. we're not worried about that. It really is how do we solve the customer's problem? And the only way to, for us to solve the customer's problem is by really writing code and working together very closely with them to understand sort of, okay, you're trying to build, let's say, the uh, uh, Olympic ad prediction tool. What does that require from us? You know, do you need mm -hmm. to connect to this thing? Oh, we don't support that yet. Okay, let's come back tomorrow and we'll have support, we'll have support for it by then. Um, and so really sales in the early days is really just working very closely, making sure we deliver value to customers. Um, and because of that, now we actually have quite a few you know, fairly large deployments of retail. And so if you look at the website itself, uh, you'll see we have you know, a sort of wide variety of uh, larger companies using retail, ranging from, let's say, media, uh, Warner Bros, NBC, Peloton, mm. arguably, um, all the way to uh, a lot of banks using retail, all the way what to the What would be the biggest footprint in terms of, you know, just how many figures of sales yearly and how many developers on the platform? Yeah. Where are yeah. you at? So yeah. today our largest deployments have maybe around tens of thousands of people using wow. uh, retool. Uh, in an organization. You, in an organization. And so if you do wow. the math, you can probably figure out what that revenue actually yeah. looks like. <laughs> Very but, few people with that many people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, um, Crazy thing is, I think we didn't realize this, uh, and I think it's hard to grasp your head around uh, in the early days of a company. I mean, to us, even you know today, selling, let's say, you know, like getting any company to pay, let's say, millions, if not tens of millions of dollars for software, seems almost ridiculous. But then you think about the value that you are delivering, and the value that software delivers uh, today uh, to companies is remarkable. If you look at a company mm -hmm. like Coca-Cola, for example. 
the cost of making cold coal is actually not getting any cheaper. You know, yeah. <laughs> they can release new product lines, right? But like the cost of manufacturing coal actually does not go down that much. Instead, what Coca Cola nowadays is innovating on is software. Uh, every mm. business today is a software company, and you're able yeah. to drive tremendous efficiency gains. You're able to drive tremendously more revenue by having exactly the right software. Uh, mm. And so for us, uh, that is why uh, that is the value we deliver. Um, how do you uh, that? How do you run? An organization that is servicing, you know, people walking up and buying, you know, the or using the free version, buying single seat versions for startups. And then you also have an organization where you have these whales that are going to spend seven or eight figures with you a year. And how do you convince people that these smaller up and coming accounts are even worth giving attention to because you, you have a limited amount of people. And if there are people who want to put a thousand or 10,000 people into the product, like how do they even waste their time? Yeah, I'm using yeah. air quotes here, but how would he, how do you get them to not look at the five person company as wasting their time on just a management basis? Because so from our, our goal is to not just make a lot of money. Our goal right. is to actually uh, change the way developers build software. And to do that, it's not just, you know, investing very heavily in one or two or even three or five companies, you know, or investing in, let's say, a Fortune 10 or Fortune 5. That's not the goal. I mean, we will do that too, obviously, because they will pay uh, uh, us a lot of money in order for us to further develop the product, further build the company. But given that our goal really is to change how people build software, we have to be uh, uh, sort of very responsive uh, to everyone uh, who wants to use Ritual, whether that is a small two-person company, a mid-sized, you know, 10,000-person company, or the giant, you know, 500,000-person company. Um, because oftentimes, many of the best ideas actually come from the smallest companies. Uh, and so a lot of our product roadmap actually comes from the smaller companies because they are the ones who are really on the forefront. Um, yeah, they're risk-taking. They're the tip of the spear. Yeah, if we're just building for, you know, the Fortune 5 or Fortune 10 or something, you know, we would probably make very different product decisions and it would probably be a hmm. much shittier product, to be honest. Yeah. It would probably index less on usability, index more on power. Yeah. Do you also do the hosting? So in a way, is this a front end and developer tool with a built in AWS cloud competitor on the back? Is that part of this or do people build with your tool put it on prem or put it into the amazon or so we you do know, both Azure so for, you, you can either host your tool on prem inside let's say aws or whatever it's docker right? so it's very easy or you can use our cloud version we'll do all the hosting for you and so all you do is you build your app and you send someone the url and you're done um and so we do both what do most um, people choose fun. to do i'm curious most will choose the cloud uh, by number 100%. Your cloud or other people's cloud, you mean? Uh, sorry, uh, our cloud. Um, yeah, because why would far. you go unbundle it and break it apart and yes, then put yes. it somewhere else? So in that case, you are in a stealth way a competitor to Amazon Web Services and Amazon Web Services dipping their toe into no code, correct? They have some sort yeah, of offering yeah. now. Yeah. What's their offering and is it even considered competitive to yours? And how do you think about AWS as this giant competitor? Yeah, their uh, offerings actually called Honeycode is what it's called. Um, All right, Honeycode. Funnily enough, yeah. uh, we're actually, Amazon's actually a customer of ours, actually. Um, and <laughs> we were talking to... Uh, we're or maybe a deconstructor from, of yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Deconstructing and rebuilding it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so we're actually um, uh, now selling to another Amazon business unit. I think it's actually AWS, actually. And they are actually also uh, using Retool. And we asked them sort of, why don't you use Honeycode? And they're like, well, you know, it's, it's not a developer-first product. You know, everything I want to uh -huh. build, I can't build it in Honeycode. 
Honeycoat, actually. That makes um, sense. And so it's a slightly different product. And so I think what Honeycoat is particularly good at is if you are building an application and don't really have sort of, you're not a software developer, you don't really understand you know, how to write code or you don't write code. Um, Honeycoat is quite good for that, but it does also mean the apps you build are very uh, difficult to customize. They're you know conceptually much simpler, I would say. And uh, you can imagine, you know, if AWS sort of builds applications, they're actually pretty complex applications, right? And in order to build such complex applications, it's not enough just to have a no-code tool. You actually have to write code. And so I think that's mm. why Retool is actually fairly differentiated from something like a Honeycode. Mm. I would view Honeycode as, let's say, competitive with like a bubble or let's say a uh, yeah. Airtable, something like that. So it's a what do you think of this movement of serverless computing where, you know, people fire up these little what, Kubernetes, I guess, and, you know, you don't need to have this massive server infrastructure. What do you think of the serverless movement? Do you think about it a lot? Do you think it's the future, like a lot of people are saying? Yeah, I think this is quite interesting because... um on the movement side, uh, I thought a bit about this because serverless was quite big, actually. Yeah. Uh, I think maybe two, three years ago, maybe yeah. last year or two. Um, but it really seems to have died down. And it's, uh, interesting to think about why that is. And I think it's actually serverless is a very good example, I think, of a trend that got hyped up, but never actually really went anywhere. And I think the mm. reason is because it didn't actually deliver value to customers. Um, in the sense that serverless, it actually turns out, was actually harder to manage uh, than just managing your own cloud servers uh, mm. or using other different cloud services. But and, a and massive so, cost savings, right? If you get a lot of traffic, it could be a massive cost savings. To, to some extent, yeah. I think mm. if you look at the math, it's like it's kind of tricky. It's like in some cases, yeah. cost savings, but if you use it a lot, it's actually not cost savings. It's, it's tricky. Got but it. so I think the problem with serverless is that it never really delivered sort of uh, value to customers. And that's what I think a lot about now because uh, you know, today we are right in this way called low or no code. And uh, it's interesting to think about, you know, is this just a trend? Is it a fad? Is it going to go away in you know, a year or two? If so, why? So why not? If not, why not? Um, and for us, I, I think there's a difference, but uh, you know, we will see how it plays out. I think low code really actually delivers substantial value to customers because now engineers are actually able to do things just substantially faster than before. Mm. Whereas serverless, it kind of is repackaging it a little bit. It doesn't actually uh, save you that much time. It doesn't actually uh, sort of uh, result in more revenue or drive cost savings. And so it's just to compare these sort of two movements. What about this concept that people have had uh, and started talking about where you're going to be able to just talk to an AI agent and it will build whatever you want. So you and I could sit here and say, let's make a an Uber Lyft competitor. That's for uh, parents. And we want it to have, you know, Apple and Google login and Facebook login. And we want it to have a checkout service and we want it to support Stripe. And it just builds it for us as we're talking. Is that yeah, going to yeah, happen? Yeah. And if so, when? It will take a while, but actually we want to get there eventually. Um, I think the, uh, the thing is today, the building blocks are so primitive. If you look at code today, right? The building blocks are, you know, uh, very basic things. You know, if you look at a line of code, for example, it's, you know, it's, it's very low level. Um, and there's no way to say, I want to add a Google login to, you know, my app. And there's no way you can do that in five minutes. You know, you got to write a lot of code and do that. And a large part of why retool is more efficient for developers is because it's much higher level. And so, you, you know, we handle a lot of the uh, stuff that you don't want to worry about. Let's say like, you know, login, authentication, authorization, audit logs, that kind of stuff. 
Um, but then you can customize it also if you want and sort of get very deep in if you want. And so eventually we actually want to do that such mm. that you can just say, Hey, you know, like you said, you know, I want, let's say a map right here. And maybe before you get on the map, you got to log in via Google, you got to log in by Apple, whatever it may be. So you drag, let's say a login component over here and then it eventually goes here, but that's still very far away because, um, and even if we were to do that, I think the customization is still key because what you just described, you know, could actually be one of, you know, there could be a million apps that fit your description. You know, there's sort of so many nuances that you have to sort of really, uh, if you really want to tune the sort of last, you know, 20, 30%, that's actually where most of the work is. So we'll always support writing code, but yeah. I, I, this is our vision is to eventually be. Wow. Uh, Are you working on that? Are you working on like a uh, Siri type interface where I could talk to it and have it do stuff? Just as there's like no a, talking yet, but, yeah. but there is dragging and dropping. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's a, that sounds like two developers uh, doing talking could build out two developers working on the, the audio uh, intelligence uh, would be pretty easy to do. Uh, as we wrap up here, long term with the company, we're seeing companies with you know, let's call it a $50 million footprint of revenue get pulled into spectacular SPACs and getting pulled into the private market. I'm sure you've got people knocking on the door saying, hey, you're ready to SPAC, you want to go public. How do you think about this new world? Uh, because you have been innovating in uh, the early stages of how to fund the company, and now there's this new innovation that's been reborn that Chamath is uh, kind of spearheaded here of, hey, you know, maybe go uh, public quicker based on the promise of uh, and the early performance. Number one, are you are people knocking on the door? And then number two, how do you think about it? Because it does seem tempting. Yeah, we get a lot of interest. <laughs> I typically ignore the emails and archive them. Um, the I think there are a lot of pros and cons to uh, just going public in general, you know, spec sure. or not. Um, and uh, for us, I think you know one pro, for example, certainly is liquidity for everyone. Um, sure. Because uh, we, you want to reward uh, early employees who've been here for a long time, and uh, you know I think that is uh, something that is really a big pro of eventually getting liquidity for everyone. That said, there are a lot of cons uh, in the sense that I think you know if you were if you were to go about like we would sort of be living you know quarter to quarter, month to month, it'd be sort of much more short term. Whereas for us, if you look at retool today, we are still so 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 early. Um, yeah. If you look at, you know, the amount of software being built in retail today, you know, if you look at software generally as a whole, even if you constrain it to just internal applications, probably something like 0.00001% of all internal apps today are being built in retail. So we could grow something like 10,000, 100,000 times and still only be 1% of all software being built. And so yeah. for us, there's just so much opportunity ahead of us uh, and so much growth left in the company that I don't think it makes sense now. That said, uh, I do think that, you know, there are many pros to doing it, uh, specifically the liquidity thing, with, which I've really Yeah, the ability to acquire other companies and just this unique moment in time. And it's going to be fantastic for the industry if certain people do choose to provide, you know, an opportunity that would only be available to private market investors to the public. But, you know, it's... You, we have to convince CEOs that it is actually worth it. And I think very reasonably, you're like, yeah, too soon for us. And then there's a bunch of people who are at 200 million, 300 million in revenue. And they're like, it's too soon for us. And I'm like, are you sure it's too soon? Because two or 300 sounds like a good number to go public. It depends like, a bit on the market size, I think. Because if, if, uh, if, for example, you're in a $500 million market, you've captured most of it, there's not much growth mm, left. And you know, at yeah. that point, I think you might have liquidity to everyone. In mm. our case, the market size is just so, so large or so far away from there today 
that there's just so much growth left in the company. And so it's is really your very first early company? days for us. It is. Yeah. First company, you made it to unicorn status, essentially. Congratulations on that. Uh, are you having a hard time staying focused? I mean, these are big numbers. You own the majority of the company. This is a big number to think about your net worth and then also come to work every day. Uh, son of immigrant parents. It's a little heavy, yes. right? How do you stay personally focused when you got this like big net worth number out here that is completely illiquid? Since yeah, you're such well, an honest so that's guy. that's never been the motivation, <laughs> right? Because yeah. Honestly, between the Series A and the Series B, like, sure, your net worth goes up very much, but like, it doesn't matter whether you're worth, let's say, 20 million or 250 million. It doesn't really make that big of a difference, or 2.5 billion. It doesn't really make that big of a difference. You know, to, to me, that's personally. interesting. You, most people don't realize that. Yeah. They don't realize that, like, there's an upper bound to how much you can spend on a hamburger or, uh, you know, a vacation. And Spending $50,000 going on vacation or $5,000 going on vacation is pretty much the same experience. <laughs> and exactly, $15 yeah. on a great hamburger and, <laughs> you know, $50 hamburgers with a little foie gras on it, very little difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for me, that's never been the motivation. And I think for yeah. the team here, it's also not, I mean, of course, it's sort of nice charity on top, you know, uh, yeah. uh, but that's not the primary motivation. The primary motivation has always been there is this opportunity for us to change how software is built and how cool is that, right? That is, um, if yeah. let's say in 10 to 20 years, if all software is being built in a retool, we were the first 50, 100, 500 people at this company, that is going to be so cool. So Awesome. Really all right. Cool. With that, I will uh, let you get back to the grind, finish off that scotch. I don't believe you that it's tea. I think that looks a lot like a Macallan 18 to me, but uh, that was a long pour. So- you, can't, you held it together, David. Uh, if you're looking to work at Retool, they're hiring. Uh, looking for developers, I'm sure. Salespeople, I'm sure. We're specifically looking for a very interesting profile. We're looking for okay. former founders who oh. like sales and who are somewhat technical. Um, wow. Because as you can imagine for us, uh, uh, sales is kind of tricky because uh we're selling to a developer right so you got to be pretty technical um got so there's anyone like that, that evangelist there? technical sales process exactly uh, so if somebody's down for that it's well paying it's nice please uh, email me yeah david please at email david at retool.com continued success david thank you for taking the time thank you to our partners for the rising stars of SAS series this is our 10th episode of 10 episode so we had so many great people. Uh, Christian came on to talk about pitch.com, which was just tearing it up and a great product. Jason Lemkin, uh, the investor, uh, behind Saster. Meritas came on to talk about income sharing agreements. Linda came on to talk about Dishcraft Robotics. Uh, just so many. Chris from Chow now comes to mind. Um, what a great, uh, series we've had. Thanks to the team, uh, Nick and Matt, Maureen and everybody for putting together a great, first rising stars of SAS we did for 2020 and we'll do it again in 2021 I think it's been a great awesome uh, series David continued success and we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups